Mike King is uh, about to start as the Director of Student Ministries at Cornerstone PCA, a new PCA church in Huntsville, Alabama, where the Lord has called him to. And so that is an exciting thing for our church to see him go in ministry there. And I know it's an exciting thing for Cornerstone PCA. And I've, uh, Kevin and I have spoken with their pastor on numerous occasions, and, and he is so excited to have Mike coming to be a part of their team there. And so this is, I'm just amazed really at this opportunity that Mike has. Uh, one, the blessing that it's going to be for Cornerstone and the way that he is going to be able to uh, jump in and, and uh, really minister in a just an awesome situation, but also that they are committing to t- helping him get through seminary and providing for him to get through seminary. And so he will actually begin studies soon as well. And so this is just something to praise the Lord for. And uh, when I first got here, Mike was one of the older ones in the youth group. And so uh, I could tell quickly that God was doing a special work in Mike, and we have seen that consistently throughout uh, his high school and college years. And so what an awesome thing to But please congratulate Mike, and you you won't get to see him on Sundays anymore uh, because they'll need him there. But please wish him the best and let him know that we're praying for him. Uh, As I transition into the sermon, one thing that I meant to put on the screen, we're actually looking at apostolic mark number three. And so if you recall, we have been going through these marks of the apostolic church. And today we're going to be looking at the mark number three of prayer And there's a couple of things that I wanted to mention about this as we're looking at this subject. When I say apostolic, because we're applying this to our our own church, what I do not mean is that we are an apostolic church in the same sense that they were an apostolic church that we read about in Scripture. So in other words, Kevin and me and Paul and Neil and Tim, Buddy, Gary, are not apostles, of course. Um, We do not claim apostleship. But what we are saying is is that God, by His grace and in His wisdom, has given us an example that has transcended time for us to see today. This is what the church is to look like. And we are going through some specific marks of the way that um, they are described. This tells us the way that they are described. This is how they were identified. This is how people knew that this was a continuation of the ministry of Christ, that Jesus was continuing to do His amazing Spirit-filled work through the church. And so we've looked at things like the Word and the authority of the Word. We've looked at fellowship of believers that we saw last week and how this marks the church. And today we're going to be looking at prayer. And another thing that I want to mention about this is now we can approach we can approach these subjects, and we can primarily say this is how it should be, and this is, and we are not that. And so we could say, okay, so this is where we need to be, or this is this is what grace fellowship should be. And I want I hope that we'll take a different approach. I hope that instead we will look at these subjects, and this is for me as well as I'm preaching and guiding us through these marks, for us to look at how it can be. That may be, that's a better question, or or that's a better way to look at this. Not how should it be, but how can it be? What does God want for His church? What does He long for His people? 
And as he, as he longs for us to be defined by the Word and, the, and fellowship and prayer, he is showing us this is how it can be because I have given my spirit to the church just as I gave it to the apostolic church. So let's consider how, how it can be as we look at Romans chapter 8. If you'll turn there, I'll start in verse 15. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. And let me just introduce this quickly. This is not normally a place where we would go to study the subject of prayer necessarily, although it's going to talk, talk about it a little bit. But I believe this is going to show us how we are supposed to approach prayer. What should be in our mind and in our hearts as we approach the subject of prayer? I think this is going to lead us to that place. So Romans 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. So the way that we pray shows us how we view God, and I believe this is as true of a statement as we can have. The way that we pray shows us how we view God and how we understand His view of us. So I want to look at three things as we look at that. I want to look at positional prayer. I want to look at instinctive prayer. Prayer, And then also I want to look at hopeful prayer as we um, see prayer as a mark of the apostolic church and a mark of which we should have as a people and as a church. Early on in the Gospel of John, we really see the offensiveness of Jesus and the scandal of Jesus that led to his death. This began with him calling God his father in saying that he was God's son, which gave him equality with God. And so I want, if you will, turn to John chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 16 through 18 to see this scandal being played out and see the offensiveness of Christ. And this is just, this is right after he had healed a man on the Sabbath, 
on the Sabbath day. And so look at starting in verse 16, chapter 5 of John. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And then look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. Now I want to give you a brief background of this scandal involving Jesus calling God his Father, claiming that God was his father. This was extremely offensive in Hebrew culture because essentially what it was saying was here was a man who was a human claiming that he was equal to God or had certain rights uh, that were shared with God the Father. And in Hebrew culture, when you read the Old Testament, this kind of language is never used by Jews. And when you see phrases like sons of God in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, they were to refer to angels. Uh, sons of God apply, that are applied to us today, that's something that is new to the New Testament. This was not a way that Old Testament Jews spoke. They rightly believed that humans were not worthy. Okay? This was, in their minds, this was the right way to, sit, to think, that humans were not worthy of an association or being in association as a family with God. And to do so was blasphemous. And so when Jesus starts using this language, it's offensive to them. Uh, They believe that it's blasphemy coming from his mouth. They believe that he is claiming equality with God based on his position of being a son. And so when Jesus is saying, I'm the son, and and when he's saying, my father, God the father, these, according to Jews, are worthy of his death. They anger them. He goes on in John chapter 5 to begin uh, saying that what the Father does, the Son does also, connecting Himself and His actions with the Father. So, the background of this is to see the scandal from the beginning, really, of Israel as a people. Uh, even afraid, in, in many cases, afraid to even call God by name, uh, much less call Him a Father. Now, what the Gospel does what the gospel does is takes this offense and even makes it more scandalous, takes it to a whole different level. Not only does the gospel say that Jesus is the Son of God, not only does Jesus have access to God as a son, not only does Jesus get rights and authority based on his position, the gospel says that you, sinner though you are, you, lawbreaker, rebel, that you in Christ are adopted as sons and daughters of God. Your position is one where you can cry, Abba, Father. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is taking the language of Christ, the language that Jesus uses in the Gospels, and he's then applying it to one himself, but also to his readers or his listeners that are in Christ. He is saying, this is your Father. And when Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, what he, he says to, to begin your prayer by saying, Our Father. Now, do you see the scandal of that one that Jesus is saying, call out to God, I'm calling out to God as my Father. But he is also saying, and then you, those of you who are following me, speak to God 
as your father. So not just his father, but our father, as if we are his brothers and his sisters, and as if we pray the same way and use the same language. So do you see, as we look at Romans chapter 8, verses 15, as we consider the topic of prayer, and as Paul begins by talking to us about our adoption in Christ, do you see that we're, we are not to look at this and we are not to say, look at, look at this, we're adopted. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that good that God has brought us in, that God has allowed himself to be near to us? Do you see that we are supposed to read this and go far beyond believing that this is nice? That we are supposed to see that this is unmatched, that this is foolish scandal that Paul is talking about, that we are allowed to look at God the way that Jesus, the Son of God, does, that we have access to the Father the way that He does, to see that this is off the charts, an unbelievable message to us that we've been brought into this family. You see that Jesus and now Paul wants us to see our position before God, that before we begin to speak to Him, it's important for us to see our position there. That we don't ever approach Him as we would a boss or a distant authority figure or even some kind of distant relative, but as a father who will give you all of His attention, all of His concern, and all of His love. Now what that should mean for prayer is that it means that we get to go right to Him. It means He doesn't hesitate to respond. It means that we can trust Him with our prayers because of our position with Him. We can trust Him as we would a perfect Father that perfectly fathers us and cares for us and responds to us and longs to be in our presence. This is what Paul is saying, that we have been adopted by the perfect God who has chosen to be a perfect Father. Now, how we pray... And how we see prayer is one of the biggest indicators of how we understand our adoption as sons and daughters of the Most High God. If an adopted child does not believe that they are as loved and as cared for and listened to as much as a biological child, it is so important, it's critical. I'm sure we have parents in here that can verify this. It is important and it is critical that they begin to understand that that is not the case, that they are in fact loved and cared for, that they are just as worthy, that they are given just as much attention as any biological child, and that by their adoption they are to receive the same promises and the same security and the same love, even the same inheritance as any biological child that there is. That is what the doctrine of adoption does. If you're having a hard time believing that that is the same thing as a biological child, I would just encourage you, go, go try, <laughs> try to convince Tim and Sharon or Mark and Brandy that you love your children more than they love theirs. Try to, but don't let me be in the same room. <laughs> try to convince them that you give more attention or more concern or more love for your own biological children than they do for their adopted children. When Paul says that we cry, Abba, Father, he is saying that God has chosen by His grace to give you the same kind of attention 
and love and care and concern and response that he does for his eternal begotten son, Jesus. This is what he is saying. This is our adoption. It's no less. This is how intense and scandalous this doctrine is. This is how loved we are in the gospel. Please know that this is what has happened in our adoption. This is our position. And positional prayer, as we approach prayer with this position, it's an apostolic mark. When we don't, we miss the mark. Do you understand? We must approach it in this position. We can cry, Abba, Father. Now, this prayer that is positional becomes prayer that is instinctive. And so I want us to look at the second, the second point of instinctive prayer. In verse 15, this word Abba, you have probably heard it translated as Daddy or Papa or Dada, which is right. But if we're not careful with that interpretation, then we'll begin to miss the greater meaning or miss the true understanding. Because this is not to say that because of our faith in God that we now have this cutesy name that we can approach God with and then we begin praying and starting our prayers with Dada. Okay? This, if we're not careful with trying to understand what Paul is saying here, then we will miss what is supposed to happen with prayer. How we're supposed to, better said, how we're supposed to approach God in prayer. What do you think that my children do when they are afraid? Or what do you think that they do when they fall down and hurt themselves? What do you think their response is? Well, I can tell you exactly what they do. They cry for mommy or daddy immediately. They begin to cry, mommy, daddy. Now, what do you think that they do right before they cry out for us, right after they become scared or right after they become hurt? What do they do in between that moment? I'll tell you from my experience. They do nothing. That's the first thing that they do. When they wake up from a bad dream, they begin to cry, Mommy, Daddy, when they fall down and get hurt, they begin to cry out for us immediately. They don't begin to check the closets for monsters. They don't start inspecting under their beds to see what may be under there. They don't go into the medicine cabinet and get hydrogen peroxide and Band-Aids and begin to bandage themselves up. They cry for Mommy and Daddy immediately. And here's why. It's because it's instinctive. It's instinctive for them to cry. This is what Paul is saying. He is saying when we cry, Abba, Father, we are crying out to God in an, inst- in an instinctive manner that we go to Him first. As soon as something happens, we go and we cry to God. Nothing else is to come to our mind first. It's such an instinctive thing to go to the Father in prayer. And this, this, is, this must come from, being, from having a positional prayer life. But as we understand a positional prayer life, we will understand an instinctive prayer life. And so know that my children, they can't get through their day. Sometimes it's hard to give thanks for this, but they can't get through their day without crying out to us. It happens multiple times throughout the day. And when they're scared, when they're afraid, or when they're hurting, it's instinctive, it's immediate. And also, 
here's, and here's something great about it as well. When something has happened for them that they want to celebrate, it's instinctive for them to run through the house and try to find us, to show us whatever they've gotten or whatever they've done. They want us to know that is an instinctive thing. And therefore, Paul is saying, because of your adoption, because of your position, because of the Spirit that is leading you and bearing witness to you, prayer can become instinctive, as if we internally know that God the Father is there, as if we understand that He hears us at once, He comes near to comfort us, and as if we actually understand that He has all the answers. And that is as if we understand that His embrace is all that we need in that moment. Now, have you ever thought, as you're moving along in life, have you ever thought, you know, I should probably pray about this first, or, you know, maybe it would be a good practice to uh, go and spend some time in prayer because this is a big deal. Or have you ever been in a position where you recognized after the fact that you didn't pray about something? And so let me join in with those of you who can answer that with, yes, that's me. Because what I'm wanting to ask here is, is there a lack of instinctiveness in your prayer life? Is that missing? Is it instinctive for when something comes up or when something is hard or when there is suffering happening? Is it instinctive for you to go to God in prayer? When there is a big decision that you're facing, is it instinctive for you to go to God in prayer? Or is it instinctive for you to get the wheels turning and then go to God in prayer? Or is it instinctive for you to move forward and then look back and say, you know, I didn't even pray about what's happening in my life. A church and a people that are marked by prayer that we are reading about in Romans 8 or a lifestyle that we're reading about in Romans 8 is not just prayer in a sense that it exists or not just prayer in a sense that we think it's a good idea or we see the commandment to do it, but in the sense that it's instinctive, that's based on our position as sons and daughters in Christ. I also want to look at how prayer that is a mark of the apostolic church and a mark of our church is prayer that is hopeful. Now here's, so in Romans 8, as we looked at verse 15, 15 and 16, what we see is the first two points, positional and instinctive. Really the rest of this passage through uh, 17 through 27 sees the hopefulness that is offered in this type of prayer life. Now here's what the enemy, as we consider the topic of suffering in our own lives, here's what the enemy uses suffering for, to destroy, to annihilate, to lead you and me to despair, to lead us to a place where we can only give up, where uh, we feel like we have done and done and tried and tried and now um, because of this suffering that has come into our life that we don't understand, we are now at a place where we can give up. This is what the enemy does with suffering. This is his longing to get permission to allow us to suffer. Now our defense of that, as suffering comes into our life, Our defense of that is to make it cease, to stay out of harm's way. Or if we get into harm's way or if we see that we're in a compromising situation or if we see that we're in a place where this probably will not turn out well for us, 
Our defense is to avoid it or to move away from it. Our defense for suffering is often to medicate it in a number of different ways. We look to bring in relief. We make plans to make sure that whatever suffering has come in will never happen again. Or we make plans to see how we can live a life that would avoid it at all costs. Spiritually, we pray that it would end. Spiritually, we plead with God that He would take away pain, whatever it takes. God approaches it differently than the enemy, and He also approaches it very differently than we do. He doesn't deliver us now from a world of suffering. This is what Romans 8 is telling us. Instead, He fathers us. He fathers His creation. And He does this as we groan and as we struggle. And so you ask, well, how in the world does that make this hopeful? How is this a hopeful thing? And I want to give us two reasons as we wind down. Two reasons for the hopefulness of this message. The first one is this, because as we groan, as we struggle, as we suffer, we hope for and we expect the redemption of all things. We hope for and we expect the redemption of the creation. We expect the redemption of our bodies, of our minds. We expect the redemption of the ground that we walk on of everything that's falling down all around us. We hope for and we expect, according to Scripture, the redemption of all of those things. And we await it. And even though we can't see it, we await it. And we hope for it. And we do that in faith, believing that all things will be set free from the bondage of corruption and death, that all things will be set free uh, from the attacks of the enemy, from the... Decay of the world, that we will be set free from those things. Also, why is this hopeful? We have hope because in our weaknesses, God uses the suffering and He uses the difficulty to grow us. He uses it to secure us and He uses it to refine us. Now, verse 26 in Romans 8, if you'll look at verse 26, can you notice here that it does not say, that the Spirit helps us in spite of our weakness. Do you see that it doesn't say that the Spirit helps us when we overcome our weakness? Do you see that it says the Spirit helps us in our weakness? In it. It's where the Spirit meets us in its most real way. That is our hope. In every other system, In every other realm, our weakness is against us. How do you overcome your weaknesses? How do you make sure that someone doesn't take advantage of your weaknesses? How do you mask your weaknesses where only your strengths shine? Paul tells us here something very different. He says, find your weaknesses. Understand your weakness. Know it. Put it on display. Highlight it. Enlarge it. And the Holy Spirit will help you in your weakness. Listen, please understand, this is not saying that if you do not know how to build a house, go out and build a house and the Spirit will come in and start nailing boards and putting this house up, making it happen. 
Please understand that this is not talking about personality traits and therefore seek what you do terribly and then the Spirit will help you. What this is saying, that if the corruption of your body, if the corruption of your mind, if the corruption of, your, of those that you love, if the corruption of this world is taking its toll, if you're fighting a disease or if you are suffering from a sickness or if you're suffering from depression or if you have someone in your life that is going through intense pain that you are sharing with them and you are feeling it, if something has been taken away that you loved and felt like you couldn't live without, and if you can only see the worst and all that's happening all around you, this is saying that God as your Father will provide for you the help of His Spirit so that you can pray with hope. This is saying that as everything is falling around, falling down around us, embrace it and pray, approach God with hope. This is what Paul is saying. A way to look at this is to say, what would the Bible say about what is fulfilling? Would the Bible say that the absence of suffering is fulfilling? Or would the Bible say that fullness of God is fulfilling? I think you know the answer to that question. And so I'll follow it up with this. What if the Bible also strongly suggests that in this life, prior to Christ's return, that fullness of God is synonymous with struggle and suffering and weakness? Humility. Understand that prayer offers hope. Not because of the promise of relief or because of the promise of strength in and of ourselves, but because of how God is redeeming this world and how He promises His presence to us in the midst of our struggle here. And that we can cry, Abba, Father. And He's there. He's with us. His presence is there. And He longs to be there. And we're about to take the Lord's Supper as a body. As God's people, as those that have been connected to by faith, connected to the apostolic church, of which Christ is the cornerstone. And as we do this, let's do it remembering our position, instinctively longing for the benefits of union with Christ and hopeful for His return, and until then, His current powerful presence. And I want to read quickly this statement from a great friend of mine who is a minister and student in Kentucky. His name's Dave Kish. And he says this about communion. He says, At the Lord's table, Christ is not merely remembered, He is encountered. He is not passive in this meal. Many view the table as a way to pay respect, like visiting the headstone of a loved one. Instead, we ought to see the table as an altar where our beloved recites his covenant promises to us again. There, we as the bride receive his words by the Spirit as we listen in wonderment of his great love that our beloved has for us. The paradox of the table is this. As we act, as we feast, we are acted upon. That is why we call it communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glory of your word, of the glory of things that 
We could never understand without your word and your spirit of how things like suffering leads us to fulfillment in you, leads us to fullness of God. Father, I pray that as we feast upon Christ, as we get a small picture of what the marriage supper of the Lamb will be like in eternity, I pray that you would work by the power of your spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.